a Christian magazine that I subscribed to recently featured a number of uh, uh, humorous things, comments on the subject of love and romance. Maybe you can identify with a single woman who got tired of looking for Mr. Right, the kind of guy that would treat her with kindness and flowers and act like a gentleman. She finally gave up and just placed an ad in the classifieds with her phone number. And above her phone number, she simply had written, Husband Wanted. The next day, she got a dozen calls from women who said, You can have mine. (laughs) I didn't think that was funny either. I'm glad you agreed with that. Now, what, what kind of messages are kids picking up on love and romance and marriage? A member in our flock sent this to me some time ago. This is what kids say about true love. Uh, Janet, a third grader, was asked how true love happens. I mean, what, you know, what starts it? And she said, well, no one is really sure how it happens, but, but I think it has something to do with how you smell. It's pretty good, huh? Nine-year-old Roger gives his opinion. Love Roger. He says, falling in love is like an avalanche, and you've got to run for your life. It's great. <laughs> Remember when my daughter was around 12, my youngest daughter is now turning 18. We were driving somewhere in the truck, and I said, honey, have you ever been kissed? And she said, "Uh, oh, no, sir. Of course, she probably knew it was a loaded question and didn't want what came next. But I said, well, that's that's great. That's fantastic. Then she had a, but I got to tell you, one time in first grade Sunday school here at Colonial, a a boy tried to kiss me after class. I said, in, in church, in class, he tried to, yes, daddy, he did. He tried to, I said, what did you do? She said, I punched him in the stomach. And I said, you punched him in the stomach in Sunday school in the class? She said, yes, I did. I said, that's great. <laughs> Keep it up. Kids were asked um, about the following. Here's a question. How do you make your marriage work? <laughs> How do you make your marriage work? I love this. Little Ricky said, tell your wife she looks pretty even when she looks like a truck. I wonder where he learned that. What kind of home he gave him? Another question, how do you decide who to marry? Good question. How do you decide who to marry? One boy said, well, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like if you like sports, she should like it too, and she should keep the chips and dip coming. <laughs> and all the men said, amen. Maybe it's that kind of response. That led one little girl to answer the question this way. How do you decide who to marry? She said, well, no person really decides before they grow up who they're going to marry. God decides it all way before, and you just find out later who you're stuck with. (laughs) And all the women said, they were even. You know, I find it fascinating, no matter where you go in the world, no matter what culture, Things like gifts and, and chivalry and, and flowers and maybe even a little perfume have a part in the culture of romance, and it ought not end at or on the wedding day. I have warned you that this study is coming, uh, chapter 2 in the book of Esther. It's a graphic portrayal of anything but romance and chivalry and kindness. There are no flowers. There are no gifts. There is no chivalry here. If we are to understand this in its proper context, there is no way, and I've warned you, we will not be able to get past this chapter without treating it correctly. And that means we cannot sanitize it. We cannot soften the edges. We cannot make it pretty. It's the next act in the drama of God's providence. It's played out on a stage in ancient Persia in a winter palace of the king. 
When the curtain closed on the first act, which was chapter 1, the king goes off to war. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2 are several years where the king musters the largest army that's ever been mustered before on the planet. And he goes off to conquer Greece. That's what his father failed to do, but I will succeed where my father failed. And so he marches off to conquer Greece. In fact, one inscription that has been uh, excavated gives us his intentions, and it was to conquer Europe from one end to the other. Western civilization would not be what it is today had that ancient king of Iran won in that battle. But the Greeks routed his army, demolished most of his navy, even though Ahasuerus had a much superior army and navy. And eventually he boards a remaining ship and he kind of slinks back into town and he finally makes it to his palace in Susa. He is sullen, he is angry, he is dispirited. And the curtain rises then with the spotlight on the defeated king. Notice verse 1 of chapter 2. After these things, that is after he returns from Greece, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Now here's what's happening. In order to set the scene, you need to understand that the Hebrew construction of this text strongly implies that Ahasuerus is blaming those seven men, for the advice they gave him to get rid of Vashti. They're his inner cabinet. And that goes throughout Persian history. Seven nobles formed his inner cabinet and the seven families. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. But he's lost the war. He's depleted his war chest. He's lost credibility in the face of all the leaders and all the citizens. And now he returns home to be reminded that he's also lost his favorite wife. He's not in a good mood. And a hazardous in a bad mood means bad things could happen. We know historically that kings kept concubines. They were known as lesser wives. No ceremony involved in that. But they also had multiple higher-ranking wives, any one of whom could wear the crown, be called the queen, depending on the whim and the fancy of the king. We also know from history that another wife of his named Amenstris has already borne to him the heir to his throne, his third son, before Esther ever enters the scene. She has evidently died or no longer has his favor. We don't know. What we do know is that Vashti, who had been wearing the crown, now she's gone. Some scholars believe that she was beheaded. And you can almost see a hazardous regretting the advice of these seven nobles and maybe he's sharpening their sword for them. And so this inner circle comes up with this idea. Listen, oh great king, why don't we throw an empire-wide beauty contest and we'll find you somebody to take Vashti's place. What makes it all the more remarkable is according to Herodotus, the Greek historian who lived just and wrote decades, just decades, a few, about 20, 25 years after these events took place, He informs us that Persian custom required that the queen be related to one of the seven noble families. A concubine could come from anywhere but one of the queens. One of the wives had to be related to these seven men, these guys who are already in trouble, and they're not going to mention that because that will be seen, obviously, as self-serving. They just know he needs a replacement. 
And that's why against all of the customs and all of the Persian traditions, which these seven would have defended, instead they suggested to the king, what you ought to do is throw the doors of the palace open and allow a commoner to become queen. You've got to be kidding. That never has happened before in the history of the Persian Empire. They're suggesting it because they're in trouble. That's why against all Persian custom and tradition, you have now God telling us, informing us that in spite of all the intrigue and the scheming and the drunkenness and the, the pride, he is setting the stage so that indeed a common girl can become the queen. That's never happened before. Verse 3, here's the plan. Let the king appoint overseers in all the provinces of his kingdom. Remember, that stretches from Africa to India. They may gather, here are the qualifications, every beautiful young virgin to the citadel of Susa, the winter resort, to the harem, into the custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let their cosmetics be given him. Then let the young lady who pleases the king be queen in place of Vashti. And it pleased the king. Surprise, surprise. Listen, to the, to the citizens of Persia... This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Anybody can apply. This would have been the talk of every village and every city. Who do you think is going to win the crown? You think it could be you, her? Well, I don't know, but, but isn't it amazing? Let's all get ready. There would be a frenzy of activity and a, a frenzy of interest. Thousands would have been waiting for the, for the attendants to arrive and say, I can wear that slipper. Why not? The prize is, is the crown and the wealth and the butlers and the maids and the money and the clothing and the food. They're going to leave a back-breaking life for life in the palace. And a common girl can win. I've seen the pictures of the excavation of Persepolis, which was one of the three palaces of the king here. And, and you can see the suites, the foundations designed, and even trees growing to this day. The, 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 the apartments, the suites for his wives rivaled any oasis known to mankind. This was, remember, paradise. Just don't forget that this contest is different than any other contest. There's only one judge, and the performances are private. And the young women who would lose the contest would be added to the harem. It would be luxury and loneliness all bundled up at the same time. Let's, let's get real here with this text, and I'll try to inform you from history as well. This life of glitter and, and glitz, all the fashion and the wealth looked great on the outside, but on the inside it was seething frustration and despair of lost hopes and loneliness, never a hope of a husband or a family. Don't make any mistake, even though the enemy does the same to us today in a number of different ways, you get behind that closed door and you discover it's a different world. We're told in history that the palace eunuchs were to keep a, a close watch over the harem because of all of the daily drama and the anger and the competition and the feuding that took place every day. Almost all of these women will never get past a one-night stand with the king. They will live forgotten, sequestered lives away from everyone for the rest of their life 
One commentator called the harem of the kings luxurious desolation. Don't ever forget when the enemy paints a picture for you. We get all caught up in the glitz and the glamour. Get behind it. It is luxurious desolation when you live in disobedience to your Savior. And you know it's true. No matter the perks. Why would Esther and Mordecai risk so much? We're given some clues in the next few verses. In verse 5, you'll notice, Now there was at the citadel in Susa a Jew whose name was Mordecai. Now notice the lineage, the son of Jair, the son of Shemai, the son of Kish, Benjamin, who had been taken into exile from Jerusalem with the captives, who had been exiled with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. What this tells us is that Mordecai's family tree actually includes royalty. Mordecai has royal blood in his veins, dating all the way back to the line of and the reign of Saul. In fact, Mordecai and his cousin Esther are descendants of what used to be until the death of Saul, the royal tribe in Israel. But what's revealing in the text is that Mordecai's name doesn't bear any hint of that kind of lineage or history. His name is simply the transliteration of Marduka. That's the name of the chief Babylonian god, Marduk. So the question is obvious, and what's a good Jewish man with noble blood flowing in his veins doing in Susa? Why hasn't he returned to Jerusalem, which Jews have been allowed to do all the way back to the great-grandfather of Hazarus? What's he doing here? And even more troubling, what's Mordecai doing running around named after a pagan god? We're not told. But there are those, and I would agree with them, that point out the fact that he's from the lineage of the former royal tribe, and the key word is former. He's a distant relative of Saul. Embarrassment, intrigue, murder is attached to that name. Jerusalem was a place where his family had lost their bid for power. In fact, you noticed one particular name that might have stood out to you. Shammai, when David was running for his life from Absalom, Shammai was the man that came out and threw rocks at David, cursing him. Solomon, the son of David, will put Shammai to death later. All that may answer why Mordecai didn't return to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a place where his family had lost their bid for power. Jerusalem represented for them shame and defeat. And so Mordecai's father has been willingly adopted into the Persian culture insofar that he names his boy after a Babylonian god. And, And that boy grows up and by the time we meet him, he is entirely Persianized. And he wears the name Marduka, Marduk, Mordecai. Now, before we get all hot and bothered, you know, about Mordecai's secrecy and his compromise and all that stuff, I can't help but wonder how much of a secret is our own relationship to Jesus Christ in the neighborhood, on the campus, at work. Have you ever had the thought, you know, if God really wants them to know I'm a Christian, he'll get them to ask me. Then I'll be ready. Do you ever notice nobody usually asks? 
I can't tell you how many people have said to me over the years something like, you know, I'm not very good about talking about Christ. I just live it. I just live it. There's a two-syllable Hebrew ancient word for that is pronounced cop out. <laughs> cop out. Has it ever occurred to you that no one will ever get saved by watching you? No one. It's a great foundation, of course, by the way. You need to make sure that what you're saying and what they are seeing match up. But they need to know why you live like you do. The only way they can see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven is for them to know who your Father is. Faith comes not by watching. Faith comes by what? Hearing the Word of God. You have to have communicated to you the gospel of God whereby someone can come to faith in Christ. And of course, he isn't very much of a testimony here in the book of Esther until later on. And I think one of the wonderful things about this book is how Mordecai will eventually come to terms with his Jewish heritage and lineage and, I believe, trust in the sovereignty of God. And we're going to get there later. We've got to hurry, though, because we're going to get through a lot even today. The main character steps out on stage in verse 7. Look there. He, Mordecai, was bringing up Hadassah, which is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Now this time we have both names. We have the Hebrew name, Hadassah, which refers to the flower, the petals of a flower, of the, uh, a low-growing tree, a myrtle tree. And we also have Esther, which she's known for. That's a transliteration of, again, a pagan name, Ishtar, which was the Babylonian goddess of love. Evidently, Esther was orphaned when her parents died, and Mordecai, although only about 15 years older than her, brings her into his family and cares for her which she is, I'm sure, very grateful for, just seeing in the way she respects him. And then Mordecai gets wind of this contest. Mordecai is a schemer, okay? Understand that about this man. He's bright. He will one day be elevated to the CFO of the kingdom, history records for us. His name will even appear in an inscription excavated centuries later. This is his chance to climb the ladder of success. He knows Esther is incredibly beautiful. He's been beating suitors away from her door now for probably several years. Now he has a chance to fully capitalize on her beauty. Notice verse 8. So it came about when the command and decree of the king were heard, and many young ladies were gathered, this is the first wave, to the citadel of Susa into the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken to the king's palace into the custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. More than a thousand virgins are gathered here in this first way. Josephus tells us, the first century Jewish historian, that 1,460 to be exact. And I can think of at least three good reasons why Esther is not going to win. First, She's an orphan. In other words, she has no family connections that might impress the royal staff. Marriages, not concubinage, but marriages were political alliances. They were ways the king could get a leg up, increase his might or his wealth or his power or his influence. She could provide him nothing along that line. If she were to wear the crown, it would mean nothing 
in terms of his empire. Second of all, the competition is fierce. Did you hear me say 1,460 are there? I mean, the palace is swimming with beautiful women. Esther's not the only girl to turn heads. Thirdly, she's a Jewess. The Jews were, a, were members of a defeated nation. They're outsiders. Yes, they've adopted the Jewish culture as they've strayed from the covenant of God. But she's an outsider looking in. In fact, if the news leaks out, whatever chance she might have had would disappear. At best, she would be a concubine. That's why you read in verse 10 that Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her that she should not make them known, and she is in full compliance with that. And Mordecai is effectively saying this. If you read him between the lines, he's saying, Esther, the God of Israel, is way over there in Jerusalem. He is is past tense. God may have made you a Jewess, and there's nothing you can do about that, but but that isn't going to do you any good out here. Out here, Esther, we live by our wits. Out here, we're alone. And it's up to us. Esther, it's just us. And this is our chance. Nothing could be further from the truth as it relates to his perspective. For God is already at work in ways that Mordecai and Esther could never manufacture. Never. Look back at verse 9. Esther pleased Haggai. He's the chief administrator in this contest. He's probably hating his life right at about now. And she found, notice this, favor with him. The word favor is the Hebrew word chesed. It's the same term used throughout the Old Testament for the covenant fidelity of God for his people, the covenant love, the amazing grace of God toward his chosen people. And even though God isn't mentioned, the word chesed shows up in this chapter. You could circle that word in verse 9. Then look down at verse 15. Maybe draw a line down it because there you read it again. Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Now don't go so fast here that you miss the shocking statement that that is. You would expect to read that she found envy in the eyes of all who saw her. Or she found jealousy in the eyes of all who saw her. There are 1,000 plus girls who want what she wants and she walks into a room and they look at her with not envy, not jealousy, not hatred, not how can we bump her off, but favor, grace. See, God may be invisible, but God is turning all of their hearts toward what ultimately will be his will. Now notice what happens in verse 9. So he quickly provided her with her cosmetics. In other words, the Avon lady is on standby here just for her. And food. Gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace and transferred her and her maids to the best place in the harem (laughs) within a matter of hours. I mean, she's been transferred to her private suite. She's got a staff. She's got a retinue. I mean, these girls are trying to get beautiful. She's got seven assigned personally to her for this makeover. She's got it made. I love, look at Mordecai, verse 11. Every day, the schemer, Mordecai, is walking back and forth in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. He's biting his nails. 
he can't, he can't get in there. He can't do anything. He's probably had second thoughts. What have I done with her? What have I suggested to her? She, she's in there with 1,400 plus contestants. She's naive. She'll never keep her secret. It isn't going to work. I've got to come up with something that I can do. What he doesn't know is that he doesn't need to do anything. In fact, God's going to use his sinful ambition to set up what God wants to do. Mordecai is not the sovereign. He'll learn that in a little bit. He's not in charge. God is. Now, would you look at what Esther is going through? Verse 12. Now, when the turn of each young lady came to go in to King Ahasuerus, after the end of her 12 months, under the regulations for the women. I mean, you had to go through 12 months before you could meet the king. For the days of their beautification were completed as follows. Six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and cosmetics for women. Can you imagine that? You thought your wife took a long time to get ready. This is 12 months. Six months with cosmetics. Are you finished yet? No, I've got five months and three weeks to go yet, honey. The oil of myrrh massaged into the contestant's skin, which would have made it soft. It would have also lightened it. Most of these girls worked outdoors. In the Persian court, the more fair the skin, the more beautiful it's considered by them. Coming indoors for 12 months would allow them to soften up and moisten up their skin as well as give them a pleasant odor. Historians tell us that they were literally swimming in pools with perfumed water. Makeup in this day was extremely developed. And I read an awful lot more than I could ever give to you. But I'll give you just a few things. I learned in my, my study that it was a science. In fact, the secrets were protected by the priests because they believed that it was connected to spirituality. They believed that the physical was the gateway to the spiritual. And they believed that even smell was connected to divine acceptance. That, that makeup around the eyes, done in certain ways with certain colors, would ward off the evil spirits, would make them approachable and acceptable to the gods. They believe that, that, that jewelry, amulets, bracelets around the, the, the wrists and, and the ankles and the neck warded off evil spirits. They had all kinds of incantations connected with it. They had rouge for their cheeks of a number of different colors. They had lipstick of a number of colors. They had eyeliner, all kinds of shades, in, including bright blue, the kind you, you don't want your daughter to wear when she goes out. But they, they had it there. There's, there's support for her. They had fingernail polish with colors like yellow and orange. They believed that beauty brought someone closer to the gods. And don't miss this. They were being prepared to meet the descendant of the gods. To them, this was as mystical and spiritual as it was physical. Add to that the fact that these contestants... The historians record for us were being schooled in court customs. Royal etiquette. One author said they're being taught what to say and how to say it. They're going to have to learn the vocabulary of the court. They're coming from all different kinds of dialects and languages. These are contestants 
in this harem, many of them straight out of the fields of work, many of them illiterate, uneducated, rough-speaking, untrained, yet natural beauties. And in 12 months, now you see it doesn't really sound that long. In 12 months, they have to be transformed from common peasant girls into potential candidates to become the queen of Persia. So this is a crash course on how to look like a queen, how to walk like a queen, how to dress like a queen, and even how to smell like a queen. And by the way, there is no protest from Esther about all the non-kosher food that's being served from the palace cafeteria. Food not sanctioned by Jewish law. Unlike Daniel, who earlier will refuse to eat the king's meat because it was non-kosher, or drink the king's wine because it had been offered as the king's wine was, as a libation to their gods. He refused it all, but not here. She accepts it all. Why? Because she's keeping a secret that Daniel was willing to make plain. So as much as we'd like to pretty up this picture, no matter how refined, no matter how perfumed, this is crass sensuality at its core. The contest was in reality nothing less than a sordid meat market. Esther is going to lose her virginity to a pagan Gentile king along with more than a thousand other young women, no doubt among them other Jewesses, and only one will be chosen. And Jewish rabbis around the first century tried to clean this all up. You remember I've told you that. Earlier they added verses to the Greek translation of the Hebrew text called the Septuagint and they they put in more than 100 verses. Some of the verses have Esther actually saying later on in the book that she never had or ate any of the non-kosher food. That's great. She can now retain her heroic status even at the beginning in chapter 2. One particular additional verse, late, obviously new and added, has her praying these words to God. And I quote in this English translation, God, you know everything, and you know that I hate the pomp of the wicked and the bed of the uncircumcised foreigner. These are obvious attempts to sanitize it all and to to make her actions, even here, heroic. In fact, even a little more modern, much more modern day, commentary, there are evangelical authors who try to make the point that when verse 16 says that she was taken to King Ahasuerus, that that meant that she was taken against her will, that she didn't want to. The problem is that exact same verb and form and voice is found in verse 15, where we're told that Mordecai took her as his daughter. A loving, caring, Compliant decision, adopting her. Listen, as unfortunate as it is, Esther is not heading for her one-night stand with the king against her will. She does not have the brakes on. She's got her best outfit on. She's even got a few secrets given to her by the chief eunuch who wants her to win the crown above all the others. So he gives her some inside scoop on the king's lustful, sensual desires. She's going in fully compliant to win the crown. 
Verse 16 says, So Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his royal palace in the tenth month. Verse 17, The king loved Esther more than all the women. And she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins, so that he, just as brashly and rashly as before, he set upon her the royal crown and made her queen instead of Vashti. But you know, after you understand the context and the setting, this victory is now a lot more hollow, isn't it? And for me to accurately expound the text, it it has to be. Nobody in the flock jumps up and down and says, Hurrah, Esther won. She's Miss Persia. Isn't that exciting? I wonder how many young women I will have talked to today who sacrificed their virginity to keep that boyfriend who said to her, I love you, and if you love me, you will. And you entered that meat market. And oh, by the way, you may have discovered he's a liar. He got behind on the other side of the door, and and you had to face the disillusionment of disobedience. I wonder how many professionals will hear me today who are keeping their faith a secret because we don't want to get that stuff in the way of our upward climb. I mean, they really don't got to know, do they? I wonder how many of us are living like Persians so that we can have the Persians pat us on the back and say, you really are one of us. You really are pretty cool. You fit in. We like you. Forgetting that Jesus Christ said, if they hate you, just don't worry about that. They hated me too. Is it that the world loves us so much and we get along so well because we are so unlike Christ? So what I want to do with the remaining time is I want to tell you I want to get behind that closed door and I want to tell you what Esther lost. In fact, it sets the stage for the grace of God, if we understand it correctly. She gained the position of queen, but you need to understand she did not gain a husband. How far from it. You see what the text says in verse 17. The king loved Esther more than all the women. Did you notice it doesn't say the king loved Esther instead of any other woman? He loved her more than the other women he loved. The the text never says, and after the crowning of Esther, Ahasuerus said, let the harem go home. Let the concubines return. I found my wife. No, verse 19, look there. When the virgins were gathered together, the what? The second time, Mordecai's sitting at the gate. Wait a second, the second time? Yes, the second wave. But you think and say, but, but wait, Esther's won the crown. Stop the contest. They had. The verb for this indicates that, that this is a new gathering. This is not a regathering of, of the ones that have already been gathered. This is new. This had nothing to do with the contest. This had to do with the ever-expanding harem of the king that will continue to expand until about 10 years from now when someone will slip into, ironically, his bedroom and cut his throat. Esther will occupy the place of queen. 
she will not be the sole occupant of the king's bed. In fact, she won't be the sole occupant of his heart, his mind, his kingdom. She won the crown. But she lost the future of a husband in the home. She also lost the opportunity for an open and honest relationship, didn't she? I mean, she has a secret. Just to set the timing up for you, it's going to take five years from this point before she tells her secret to the king. Can you imagine living for five years in fear and in disobedience, hoping no one puts two and two together? And when she finally comes out with a secret, it's almost too late. See, here's the point. God works his will through faithful people and he works his will in spite of unfaithful people. Aren't you glad for that? I don't know about you, but I don't step up to God and say, now God, I'm faithful, do your will through me. I don't pray that way. Lord, I am unfaithful. I am sinful. Oh, but would your grace use me? That's the perspective. We understand that his providence is unstoppable. His will will be done. You can either join it with joy and gratitude and obedience and surrender, or you can, you can fight it. You can pull away from it. That will affect your life as well. But I want to pull out something here from, from this. Have you ever thought about the grace of God and how it meets you even at your point of sin? That even then he's gracious? This is the doctrine, by the way. We don't spend a lot of time on it because we want to tell everybody to be good people, right? And we do. Don't go out there and sin. Stop it. You've heard that from me. I'm not defending or suggesting sin. But when you understand the doctrine of grace correctly, this is what led people to tell Paul, you are off, you're, 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 you're off your rocker. You tell people that, that, that even when sin abounds, grace abounds more, Romans 5, people are going to go sin. And Paul will come back around and say, that's not what I mean. God forbid that. Because of his grace, we're able to live for him. And we want to. But his grace never leaves us alone, even in our willful disobedience, which is daily. Hello? Reality check. You know what Esther 2 strikes me as? Esther 2 is drenched with utter depravity, yes, and sinfulness and disobedience, but it is also drenched with the grace of God. As I studied this text, his grace was the perfume I smelled. His kindness toward Esther, so strong. Even in her faithlessness to the covenant, he will be faithful to his covenant. You see, have you ever thought about what happens if Esther loses? Let me show you what happens to the losers. Look at verse 13. Notice the process. The young lady would go into the king in this way. Anything that she desired was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem. 
to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king unless the king delighted in her, and she was summoned by name. Did you catch that? She goes in, and she's referenced as a woman, a young lady, a virgin. She comes out, and she's referenced forever, from that point on, as a concubine. She is relegated to a life of luxurious desolation. Never to be called upon again unless the king remembers her name. And kings were not in the practice of remembering names. They were in the practice of adding names. You want to see the grace of God? Here's the grace of God. In spite of Esther's disobedience and her secret and her immorality and her faithlessness to the covenant, here is the grace of God. It is the grace of God that God turns the heart of this dirty old man to choose her to be queen. Why? So she can win the contest? So she can wear the crown? So she can be Miss Persia? How shallow? No. So that she could be in her divinely appointed place according to the providence of God for such a time as this so that a remnant will be spared so that God's covenant promise to keep a people for himself will be fulfilled so that from that people a savior will be born who will die on the cross for you and me so we could be redeemed and then one day with him rule and reign in the coming kingdom that's why this is one piece of the puzzle from the the manager of the drama backstage you don't see him This is the grace of God. And I want to tell you that the life of satisfaction and joy will be a life that doesn't test providence. It trusts providence. It it gets out of bed in the morning and says, Oh, Lord, I want to align myself to whatever it is you're going to do. I don't want to disobey. I don't want to resist. I want to follow you. I want to be used by you. I want to speak of you. I want to be an ambassador for you. I want to introduce people to you. This is, this is my divinely appointed place. You there for such a time as this. Is there any other response to this kind of gracious God who meets us in our acts of faithfulness and who still meets us in our faithlessness in that his providence will still be continued and he gives us opportunity after opportunity to align ourselves in submission back to the Father just as he will do with Esther and Mordecai. Can we do anything less in response to what we've sung about? His amazing grace and his amazing love than that. Well, we covered a lot. The plot thickens from here. We'll pick it up with a, with a foiled assassination attempt on the life of the king who was spared by the quick thinking of Mordecai. Just make sure that you do not read ahead. <laughs> Let's close as our benediction with something we sang earlier. Let's lift your voices and sing Amazing Love. How can it be? Sing with me. Amazing Love.